Hey everyone, it's Erica. I've prepared something special for you. I wanna invite you to my one-of-a-kind five-day challenge where I'll be sharing how you, along with thousands of others, can start investing with confidence. You're probably thinking, Erica, I've never invested into the stock market, or I don't have a ton of money lying around. But that's exactly why I created this challenge for you. It doesn't matter if you have lots of money to start with or next to nothing. You'll discover easy and fun ways to start generating passive income, multiply your money, and create a future of financial independence without the guesswork, complexity, or risk when it comes to investing. The challenge is right around the corner, so secure your spot by clicking the link in the show notes. And by the way, this challenge is totally free. So click the link in the show notes or go to erica.com slash invest. That's E-R-I-K-A dot com slash invest. Again, that's E-R-I-K-A dot com slash invest to secure your spot. Now back to the episode. So because you are an expert in food marketing, what would you say makes you the most upset? now that you've uncovered it. Companies have really come under fire for disproportionately targeting their least healthy products to youth of color. What are some of the health-related diseases that communities of color are maybe more likely to face? Dr. Marie Bragg is a public speaker, researcher, and expert in health and nutrition. She advocates for change in U.S. food policy and shares food secrets that the big corporations don't want you to know. There's powerful evidence to suggest that food marketing exposure is really like a cue to consume. Marketing is one of the most powerful forces on the planet, I think. What do the food companies not want us to know? I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. When I started my online platform, it was just me for so long, doing every job needed to make things work. I remember spending hours and hours figuring out how to build a website, how to sell items online, and everything in between. I really believe the easier it is to get started, the quicker you can make money in your business. That's why I love Shopify. Running a growing business means getting the insights you need wherever you are. With Shopify's single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere. And you don't have to be a tech-savvy wizard. They've got you covered with their all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system for wherever and whatever you're selling. So it's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Erica, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Erica now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Erica. What do the food companies not want us to know? They make it really difficult to know exactly what's in our food, and there are all sorts of sneaky ways that this happens, so... A lot of times when I'm talking to parents or uh, consumers who are interested in knowing more about what's in their food, what I encourage them to do is turn around and look at the ingredient list. Because on the front of a box, we might see pictures of fruit and whole grains. And then when you turn it to the back, sometimes the first ingredient is high fructose corn syrup, which is just sugar. And then there are a lot of times a ton of chemicals, things we can't pronounce, 
food dyes, and it looks totally different than the picture that's painted on the front of the box. So there are really a lot of laws to try to hold the companies accountable with, you know, sort of claims they can make on the front of the box. But that story on the front of the box versus the side is a really fascinating one. Have the regulations around transparency in labeling the food become stricter over the last 10, 20 years or more relaxed? In other countries, the regulations have become really strict. In the United States, it's a lot harder to do. And there are all sorts of things that go into that. It would be really interesting to hear your take on it because I think there's legal protections for commercial speech and things that can make it complicated. But a lot of the labeling policies, some are now voluntary. So you see companies saying non-GMO or organic or gluten-free. And one of the things my grad advisor always said was like, you can put vitamin A, vitamin C, whatever into junk cereal, it's still sawdust at the end of the day that you're eating. (laughs) And so that image always stuck with me because, you know, we can sort of package something that's really um, unhealthy with a lot of nice labels on the front. The labels can't be misleading or sort of have false claims. So there was a drink brand that was in some legal trouble for claiming that their product would help with eye disease, but it was a sugary beverage. So things like that come up, I think, that Like help. a blueberry drink? It was like um, like a sports drink. And one of the ads said something about, you know, helping with some kind of eye problem. And so they sort of got into some hot water over that because I think that the uh, regulations try to make it really hard to mislead consumers with information like that, especially something so blatant like that. So because you are an expert in food marketing and nutrition and all of this stuff, what would you say makes you the most upset now that you've uncovered it? I'm trying to rank order what makes me <laughs> upset about food marketing in my mind, and it's really hard. If you want to list off a bunch, that's yes. fine, too. So I think the purposeful—so there are two categories. I think one is the purposeful way that companies target really young kids to try to get them to be, you know, early adopters of their products. And so— um, there was a study done by the Yale Red Center where they looked at these things called advert games online. And they would be basically like branded cereal games that kids could play stuff online. And the brands appear in them. And it's just sort of all sorts of positive associations that the kids form with these websites. A lot of these cereal companies eventually shut them down because the research showing, you know, it was a little bit of a sneaky way of advertising. But even on social media, you know, there are sometimes games that kids or apps that kids play and the brands will want to keep them playing for longer. So they sort of will activate, you know, these notifications or awards or prizes for kids to keep them on it in a way that is sort of coupling more exposure to junk food brands. And I think that's been one really concerning thing. The other thing is that companies have really come under fire for disproportionately targeting their least healthy products to youth of color. And so black and Hispanic youth see more junk food ads even after controlling for how much media they consume. So sort of regardless of how much a black adolescent is watching TV, the companies are targeting them with more junk food ads than their peers. And so that's concerning to me as a researcher because— it really helps set people up for diet-related diseases that maybe um, wouldn't be sort of coming down the line for them anyway. My And my family is from Trinidad, so I think seeing sort of a lot of diabetes and stuff growing up in our house, that targeted marketing of communities of color has been really concerning throughout my career. Why are the food companies doing that? There are 
food companies that have been quoted in advertising trade journals as saying they perceive Black adolescents to be trendsetters in the United States. So reaching Black teens is critical. And um, those same marketing executives will say they uh, over-index in single Black family households, so reaching mom is critical. And so there's this perception, the trend-setting nature of youth of color is really powerful in that if they think something is cool and adopted, it will sort of, you know, spread out to others. And so it sort of makes them a big target for lots of reasons. And it's that's a lot of pressure to put on kids, you know, and especially it's not it's not that it's marketing is evenly split between healthy and unhealthy products. The vast majority is for junk. And so that's part of what makes it concerning. Wow. So what should parents be doing to not let the food companies target their kids like this? Parents are under a lot of pressure to, you know, sort of watch what their kids are watching, educate the kids. But marketing research has shown that you can still be influenced by it, even when you're aware that you're being marketed to. And so it's really not enough to expect parents to sort of educate their kids out of this stuff. And so one major thing that parents can do is be vocal to the companies, whether it's on social media or in other ways. There are lots of groups like Moms Rising that get really vocal about topics they care about. And so companies know that parents are a gatekeeper to the next generation of consumers. And so when parents get really upset about something and demand, you know, better products, the companies want to respond because they don't want to lose those consumers. So it's really not so much just telling the kids like, hey, watch out for marketing because they'll still be persuaded anyway. It's really about, you know, how do we get feedback to the companies that this stuff is not okay? I was thinking as I was reading some of your research about Prime and how Logan Paul and KSI have made this drink so popular. And I've heard that in some high schools, Prime has actually been banned because it basically became a status symbol of the haves versus have-nots. So the wealthier kids in the school would have prime bottles and show up to school with them while the others could not afford it. So they banned them in a lot of these schools. That really taps into something that is fascinating about adolescent development. So when we're becoming teenagers, and we probably both remember this, we're trying to not be like our parents most of the time. And we're often thinking of what brands do we like that are unique to us and sort of are we Nike person or an Adidas person. And so all of that sort of feeds into our self-image as a teenager. And so it's a really critical developmental stage for that time. And junk food companies know this too. And so the idea of sort of peer status, being cool, being on top of trends, they know, you know, how to sort of tap into that for teens during this time period. And so I hadn't heard that story about the schools banning them, but we have seen a lot of those ads on TikTok, and it's just, they're really subtle, too. Sometimes people will be jumping on a trampoline, and there'll be, you know, um, something in the background. And it's sometimes hard to tell what's an ad versus just somebody ha happen to have it in the background. But it's really can be such persuasive stuff. There was one interesting thing I was reading in your research, which is that you, we see all these advertisements for unhealthy things, but then when you compare that to the number of advertisements we see for water, it's very different, right? It's very different, the breakdown between junk food and things like water. And the incredible thing is it's across the board with endorsements. So you would think maybe celebrity athletes would be doing a lot of endorsements for water, but we saw a ton of sugary sodas and, um, not surprisingly, sports drinks. My perspective on it is let's not come down on the athletes for 
Because how how hard is it to turn down a you know twenty million dollar deal when that can literally help you open a school for kids or help your entire extended family for possibly like multiple generations? I don't know, even know if that's what twenty million dollars will get you. Clearly, I don't know like how <laughs> money works. I'm like you could feed the whole country for twenty million dollars, but it's hard to turn that down. So it's really about putting pressure on the companies themselves to say like if you're going to take the world's best athletes and ask them to endorse something at least include some waters in the mix so that kids are getting the message that this is really what fuels, you know, athletes. Because the athletes sometimes in moments of candor will say, oh, I don't eat that stuff or I don't drink that stuff. Um, and, you know, they have to rely on healthy stuff to fuel themselves a lot of the times. Sorry, my my brain is blanking too because I kind of feel bad that what I've what have I endorsed that's unhealthy? The funny thing about endorsements is there's a time and a place for everything. <laughs> and so if somebody is adult-targeted and they're including sort of adult-targeted stuff, that's a different story than people who are really trying to go after, you know, three- and four-year-old kids. You know, marketing isn't just what we see on TV and social media and stuff. It's um, in New York City, I testified on a policy that was designed to improve the health quality of Happy Meals. And because there's these crazy studies that where they took preschoolers, one was out of Stanford, one was out of um, the University of Pennsylvania, and they gave the preschoolers these packages of foods, and they either had a fast food logo on them or not in one of the studies. And what they found was that the if you ask kids, like, which one do you like the taste of, they not surprisingly like the one that had the logo on it, even though it's the same exact food. And in the other study, they also included licensed characters like Shrek and Dora the Explorer as stickers on these products. And they included products that aren't even sold at fast food restaurants like graham crackers or, you know, vegetables. And kids think it tastes better and they want the product more, even when it's not something that's actually sold by that company. The idea that we sort of like couple toys with French fries and, you know, fried chicken nuggets for kids when their brain at that young age is already logged on to the idea that, like, if Shrek is on this, it tastes better and I want it more, it just goes to show, you know, the power of associations that these young kids have already. When I first started out, I did everything for my business. I was everyone I needed to be, and it was great at first. But I got to the point where I realized if you're trying to do too much without the right systems in place to help you, the cracks start to emerge. If you're in a similar situation, you should know these three numbers, 37,025, 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind, so you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. There's tremendous power in having all the information in one place. If you're obsessed with efficiency like I am, then right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist, designed to give you consistently excellent performance 
absolutely free at netsuite.com slash Erica. That's netsuite.com slash Erica to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash Erica. I'll put the link in the show notes and now back to the episode. So my mom is from Japan, so I grew up in Japan, spent a lot of time there. And have you heard about Japan and KFC during Christmas? I've heard that in some places, McDonald's is an incredible place for birthday parties, and it's like the coolest place to go. But tell me about this. Okay, so in Japan, Christmas is associated with KFC. And so it's known that on Christmas Day, you need to go to KFC and get your chicken. And it's so busy that you have to pre-order your chicken from KFC to be able to pick up on Christmas Day. And this happened because years ago, when they were thinking about how do we market KFC in Japan, they, I forget, I forget the exact stories, don't, don't quote me, but someone on the marketing team of KFC was like, let's pretend that Americans eat KFC for Christmas. You're kidding. So because of that now, in Japan, like, you'll just see a huge line on Christmas Day of people who have pre-ordered their chickens for KFC. That's incredible. I have never heard that, but if I can credit you on a slide, I would love to include that as an example of how <laughs> companies, you know, sort of, yeah, can take over holidays. It's absolutely crazy. That's such a good point because I I often get the question of, well, companies just want you to pick their brand versus the other brand, and that's really what marketing is about. Or they'll say, sometimes people will say, and the companies themselves will say, we're just marketing people what they want. But, like, none of us were born wanting, you know, a brown syrup that had bubbles in it and, um, and I don't know. Yes, we're designed to like sugar, salt, and fat, but we weren't designed to—we didn't really ask for these products in the way that, you know, it's assumed that we do. And so the examples of companies coming in and sort of becoming a part of the culture, it's like Coca-Cola in Mexico. It has um, really strong ties there and for meals and things like that. But that's that one may um, take the cake. Yeah. <laughs> but the craziest thing was my American friend and I were both practicing lawyers in Japan. And Christmas is not a holiday in Japan, so it's just a normal working day. And so we didn't have, like, time to go out to do Christmas dinner. So we even thought, oh, let's go to KFC for Christmas Day. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but we hadn't pre-ordered, so we couldn't get chicken. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I think that speaks to how much it can get into our brain, even when we think it's maybe not going to, or even when, you know, it's, it's sort of you and, a, and another American lawyer it's just really powerful. Yeah. Like marketing is one of the most powerful forces on the planet, I think. That and gravity, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so what should we absolutely not be putting in our bodies? What would you say are the three worst things that we can put in our bodies? I think in general, things that are highly processed that come really heavily packaged is a good indicator that it's got stuff in it that we probably don't want in our bodies. And they're at the top of my list. One of the areas that's concerning to me is is high fructose corn syrup. There's been more research coming out on some of the artificial sweeteners. So the World Health Organization just issued some guidance saying uh, there are concerns about the carcinogenic effects of some artificial sweeteners. Like stevia? Aspartame, specifically. And stevia, I think, is newer enough that I don't I don't know of a lot of research on sort of the effects of that. I think sweeteners can have all sorts of health effects that can be problematic when overconsumed. I think it's a challenging question because I in 
the flip side of the question is almost easier in terms of like, what should we be doing? Because the list of things that are concerning is so long. So it's like, do we want to take our pick of chemicals, of food dyes, of, and some of the things we don't yet know what they do to our bodies. But one of the rules of thumb that I use is like if it was manufactured in a lab and synthesized, maybe I'll be a little bit more concerned about it. Even as I'm saying that, though, I amend it because I know there is some work being done on lab-grown meat. And people have argued that that's really good for the planet. So the, you know, so I, I shouldn't say that nothing grown in the lab is bad. But I think those are, would be the couple that would top my list. And then what's at the top of the good foods to eat list? You know, I love this book by Michael Pollan. And he is such a great food writer. And it's a really thin book called Food Rules. And the three food rules that he has are eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And it's sort of a simple message and it's meant to be. And the one that is eat food is a little bit weird because it's like, well, we all have to eat food. But what he means by food is things really that your grandparents' generation or great-grandparents would recognize. So that really is a good guide and it doesn't overly complicate things. And it says mostly plants, but not like everything has to be plants. And so so I think that's been a really good guide. And that and part of that in grocery stores means shopping around the perimeter of the grocery store and trying to avoid the inner aisles that are full of all the processed stuff. Yeah. Well, that's another thing that I know about food marketing is for grocery stores, what they'll do is put kids' foods at eye level of the kids so that they can say, hey, mommy, I want those fruit roll-ups or... Yes. A friend of mine did a study where they, you know how in school... Sometimes you say, well, you know, they use geometry again. Um, this grad student used um, geometry to look at the angle of the character's eye gaze on the boxes. And what they saw was that for characters, like kids' characters that are on boxes, the eyes would be looking down towards a kid, um, like where a kid would be. And then for adult-targeted, you know, serials, the characters were looking straight ahead, like where the adult eyes would be. And so, like, I can't think of a creepier study than that, but it's just, I don't know, the, the sort of depth of, of how these things are set up is really incredible. These marketers are too good. Yeah. I also know for grocery stores that, like, they'll put the healthy foods in the very back so that you have to go through the aisles. Or, for example, Costco, they'll put the rotisserie chicken that everyone wants and is a good deal at the very back so you have to make your way through every single aisle to, in order to get there. Yeah, the behavioral economics behind the way stores are engineered is incredible because it's sort of all the candy that's at the checkout area, you know, where you maybe are done shopping, but all of a sudden, well, here's the my favorite candy bar. Or if you have kids in the cart, all of a sudden they're sort of grabbing for things. So the sort of engineering of how supermarkets are set up is really incredible. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. The holiday season is on us once again. It can feel like such a rush. All the shopping, wrapping, gift exchange, holiday parties, and events never seem to end. Despite how busy it can get, the holidays are such a wonderful opportunity to express how much we care for those around us. But we also need to remember to care for ourselves. So whether it's by starting therapy, going easier on yourself during tough moments, or treating yourself to a day of complete rest, remember to give yourself some love this holiday season. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and specifically designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
My BetterHelp therapist supported me in setting boundaries and realistic expectations for myself so that I could avoid feeling completely overwhelmed with all my obligations during the holidays. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com etm today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash E-T-M for Erica taught me. I'll put the link in the show notes and now back to the episode. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between six to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. Okay, so the supermarkets are clearly set up to push unhealthy foods towards adults and children. How are the ads set up to do the same thing? Ads, especially the ones that target kids, are super colorful, engaging, you know, tap into what kids love, not surprisingly. One of the most interesting things from food marketing research is when studies randomize kids to either see food commercials or non-food commercials. And what those studies have shown is that the kids who see food commercials end up eating significantly more calories than the kids who see non-food commercials. But the most fascinating thing to me is it's not like you see a brand for cookies and you eat more cookies. It's actually you could see cookies and you'll eat more chips. It's sort of the kids eat more of whatever's in front of them. And so the power of advertising extends beyond brand loyalty. So it's not just that, yes, the ad may turn someone into preferring one brand over the other. But with food ads specifically in kids, it can get them to eat just more of whatever's in front of them, regardless of the type of food that's on the screen. That kind of makes sense because my husband loves cooking shows. And I don't like cooking shows because I'm like, well, I can't taste it. So what's the point? But whenever he's watching them and I'm in there, it makes me hungrier. Yes, it really taps into our brain and how it responds to cues. And so it would make sense that, you know, for survival, when we see food we would eat it because that would help us survive. And now in this environment where there's so much food everywhere, we don't really need that survival tool as much. But there's powerful evidence to suggest that food marketing exposure is really like a cue to consume. So is the solution then that we should limit the number of food ads that are allowed to play on the airways or? The United Kingdom has done just that. So if you go into their subway system, the the tube, right? Um, Yeah. There are no junk food ads in it. And they have just done a phenomenal job with uh, getting at some of these regulations. Chile has also done this. They've act- Chile has actually 
required companies to remove the licensed characters from the boxes. So Tony the Tiger is not allowed to appear on Frosted Flakes in Chile. It's so interesting looking. It's just a blue box. And there, you could see they sort of snuck in a couple of tiger stripes uh, along the edges, but they were removing a lot of the, you know, kid-targeted characters to reduce the power of these uh, associations that get really strong in our brains. So the U.S. is kind of behind in terms of protecting children from these advertisements. The U.S. is very behind. And so if you look at a map of the the globe, you can see there's, you know, probably more than a dozen countries at this point that have some restrictions on junk food marketing to kids. And the U.S. is just a glaring absence in that landscape. And it's because it's really hard to affect commercial speech. It's really hard to affect advertising because it's so well protected in the United States. Mm. And that's why one of the best things that consumers or parents can do is get vocal with the companies and and put pressure on companies to change things. Because if you think about now how much we have out there that's organic or you know, non-GMO or whatever the label might be, a lot of that is consumer demand for those sorts of things or sort of negative pressure on fair trade issues or things like that. So consumers have a a really strong voice when it comes to changing company behavior. Sometimes it's harder, too, because a lot of these junk food companies have been around for years and years, and their marketing budgets are huge compared to maybe the newer comers that promote natural or organic food, right? Not only that, but a lot of times the big companies have the budgets to buy these newer, smaller, healthy brands. And there have certainly been some stories where those brands take off and they thrive, but then other times where all of a sudden the brand starts to struggle and they're and no they longer— get squashed. Yes, and they get, just get squashed, and they're sort of no longer a competitor, you know, with the sort of parent brand. And and I'm always so curious about what happens there. Was it that that was going to happen to that small, healthy brand anyway? Or were they sort of starved of resources? And so there are so many fascinating questions around what happens when these big—because really— most of the food we buy is from a handful of huge parent companies. So when we think about all of the brands of soda, they're mostly owned by three different companies. And we think we have hundreds of choices, and we do hundreds of brand choices, but it's really three main companies that are making all those products. And the same thing goes for uh, food products. Like ConAgra is is just one of the largest and and owns a lot of the different brands that we think of as, we often think of them as their own companies making their own choices, but they're all sort of um, can be under the directive of these giant parent companies. So is there anything positive that you'd say has changed in the last 10 years that's gone in the right direction? I think one of the positive things is how much consumers are getting tuned into the sneaky stuff that's going on and demanding things that are different. And one of the most fascinating things is on the topic of milk, actually. I love thinking about how younger generations are sort of changing the food landscape because a few of the students that I work with in my research lab were talking about how on social media a lot of times um, young people call what I call milk, which is cow's milk. They call it cow's milk. And so they, you know, they say almond milk or soy milk or cow's milk um, or animal milk and how much plant-based milks are popping up on, you know, major coffee company menus and things like that. So I think the sort of increased preference for 
milk and the plant-based milks and the awareness maybe that there are things wrong with our dairy system has been something that's been really positive. But in general, I think consumers are getting really tuned into stuff and demanding that the companies do better. That's true because I became lactose intolerant maybe 10, 15 years ago. And it was very hard to find alternative options at that time. I mean, you could find soy milk, but almond milk wasn't really a thing. Oat milk certainly wasn't a thing. But now it's everywhere and you can get it easily. Yeah. And it turns out a ton of people are lactose intolerant. It seems nobody really talks about it that much. But for a ton of people in this country, dairy hurts their stomach or, you know, gives them other digestive issues. And I guess it can be weird to talk about digestive issues. Maybe that's why people aren't walking around being like, hey, my stomach really hurts after that latte. Um, Gotta go to the bathroom. Yeah. (laughs) Why is it that I wasn't lactose intolerant my whole life. And then I think it was like when I turned 18 or 19, suddenly it was milk was a no-go. I asked my doctor about this and they said that most of the time, really young kids can digest the enzyme lactose and that as we age, we lose the ability to digest lactose. And that's why some of those products that are sort of like lactose supplements help you digest the enzyme. But as we age, we just lose the ability to do it. And so it sort of seems like people become more sensitive to dairy as they age. And when I was asking about it, they were saying really around up to age four is when kids have the highest ability to um, to process it. She was also telling some interesting stories about the way some parts of in some parts of the world domesticated cows, and so their bodies got a little bit more used to digesting dairy milk. Whereas, like in other places of the world, goats were the sort of more prominent form, and so people from those regions can either process cow's milk better or worse based on sort of their ancestry. And I haven't followed up on that, but it it would make logical sense that if for generations you were sort of getting used to consuming cow's milk versus goat's milk, it would be easier on your system. Asians are more likely to be lactose intolerant, right? Mm -hmm. It's a lot of communities of color. So it's Asians, sometimes Black and Hispanic communities. NYU, there's a center for the study of Asian American health. And one of the projects that they did was looking in the Lower East Side at free and reduced lunch, which includes milk. And all the milk was being thrown away. It was a, It's a predominantly Asian and Asian-American school. Um, and the milk was being thrown away because most of the kids, it hurts their stomach to drink it. And so that's one of the things that drives me crazy about the way food regulations are set up in our country is built into this free and reduced lunch. And it's subsidized. And it, at the same time, it makes a lot of kids, like a lot of kids can't digest it. You mentioned earlier that there's a lot of marketing done specifically towards communities of color. What are some of the health-related diseases that communities of color are maybe more likely to face? There are a lot of diet-related diseases like diabetes, heart disease, certain diet-related cancers that really heavily affect communities of color. And it's not one thing that drives that. It's really a number of factors. And so when we think about the history of where people can live, redlining, where people could live, what kinds of grocery stores people have access to, what kinds of jobs historically people have been able to get, and we include marketing in that mix, and then access to healthcare. There are just a, an enormous range of structural factors that can come together to make it really difficult to maintain a healthy lifestyle. And one of the problems that has been a sort of narrative in this country, especially when it comes to food, is that people who are living in larger bodies, there are stereotypes that people are lazy, they don't work hard enough, they, you know, if they would just try harder and exercise more, 
things would go fine. But there are so many factors that go into our health that it makes it really hard to engage in healthy behaviors all the time, even when you have all the resources available to you. And when you don't, it means that the deck is stacked against you. So when we think about kids who are from communities of color and um, thinking about the sort of what's available in schools, what's available in neighborhoods, it can make it really challenging. I remember reading about these food deserts where in certain areas it's harder to access these healthy grocery stores. So maybe the only choice is McDonald's or these fast food places. Yeah, that food deserts have long been an issue in lower income communities and also food swamps where there's too much junk food. And so it's sort of the opposite side of the coin where on every corner there's a fast food restaurant or maybe a convenience store that just has, you know, packaged products that aren't very healthy. And so either situation is going to sort of set people up to have a really difficult time making healthy choices. And uh, one of my colleagues, Brian Elbel, did a study with some partners showing that kids in New York City, kids' proximity to fast food restaurants from, you know, where they live, can predict how, um, you know, their weight status and different health indicators. And weight status isn't the only important thing, you know, about health, but it's one measure that's used. And so um, so it's literally like how close are you to fast food can, can have a strong impact or, on your health. Something you said that I caught on to was that you don't want to be so strict with your kids that they go on the other side. So how are you thinking consciously about how to talk to your kids about food and how to make these choices around food? I think this is where being a clinical psychologist comes into play a little bit and combines with the food research. And so one of the things that I try to do is avoid labeling certain foods as bad and certain foods as good. Or something we never say in our house is like eating that will make you fat. Like we don't talk about weight and the effect of food on weight. We talk about how does it feel when you eat these foods? Like is is this going to make you, you know, strong and sort of able to run fast? And so, and I think by not labeling foods as good or bad, it gives kids the freedom to sort of have a whole range of things and not sort of internalize the guilt that comes with eating ice cream or whatever it is that a lot of us grew up with. So for a lot of people, there's a reason it's called guilty pleasure to have, you know, your favorite dessert. And I think we can do a lot to move away from that by using neutral language to describe foods or gently redirecting a kid if they say, you know, because they hear things from everywhere. And so some foods that I've never even heard of that my kids will say, oh, that is so bad for you. And I'll say, well, sometimes we're going to have, you know, little bit of this, little bit of that. And really nothing is good or bad. It's just food. And so we we want to try to think of what's going to make us feel good and, you know, and be thinking about how our belly feels when we eat it. I like that a lot because I feel like you're right. Even as adults, we do talk about guilty pleasures. And I do maybe feel a little guilty when I'm stuffing my face with cupcakes. Yes. And it's so hard to know the language to use, not only for kids, but for ourselves too. And so When I was growing up, there was a lot of emphasis on finishing the food that's on your plate and not wasting food. And the way we don't waste it is we sort of like put it back in the fridge. And if they ask for food between dinner and bed, we sort of take it back out and we can say, yeah, here's here's some of the dinner that you didn't finish if you want it. Having no rules that are about finishing food, I think, is one aspect of sort of getting away from tying guilt or some type of morality to how much we eat. 
But it's also hard to figure out how to talk to them about how to know when they are satisfied. And and we try to avoid the language of, are you full? Because full, is, at least for me, implies that I'm starting to get uncomfortable. And so what we've tried to say to the kids is, is your belly feeling comfortable? And I'll say, like, comfortable means, like, it's feeling like, okay, I feel pretty good. Um, but it doesn't hurt. And um, so comfortable means you. Pro- it feels like you've had enough and you maybe um, want to go play or something like that. And so that idea of associating food with feeling comfortable as opposed to I'm finished because it feels like I'm so full I can't eat anymore is, is one aspect of that that we've tried to focus on. But it's so it's so hard. If you had to summarize the top three things that, based on your research, you want people to absolutely know, what would you say? Junk food marketing is everywhere, and it's incredibly powerful, and even being aware of its effects is not enough to defend against it. And that's particularly true for young kids who are absorbing the messages of marketing in ways that we might not even be aware of from as young as, you know, really toddlerhood. The other thing I would say is this isn't a research finding, but I would say that's something that I've taken away as a parent and as a person is to be kind to ourselves about how difficult it is to be healthy, whether that's exercise or what we're eating. It is so challenging in today's food environment to make the healthy choice every time. And so if people feel like they're struggling, letting go of some of that self-judgment and and really trying to focus on when things do go well, uh, you know, praising ourselves or feeling good about that, because layering on the self-judgment or self-criticism can make it just so much harder. I would say the third one is really that parents and all consumers can change the food environment by getting vocal about things. I heard this great quote once that was saying, every time, you know, a barcode is a vote. So every time we purchase something, it's a vote that gets back to the companies. And so it's sort of we vote with our wallets every day, all the time. And so if we want to make those votes count for kids, trying to shift towards things that are what we want companies to be you know, promoting, but also getting vocal with them, whether it's on social media or um, in other ways to say, hey, we want less sugar in these fruit snacks. And they eventually, when enough people make noise, they respond to that. And so I think the power of a bunch of voices coming together is really incredible. So the podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Dr. Marie Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away saying, Dr. Marie Bragg taught me this? I would say that I hope people feel more aware of how to navigate the food environment and how it can impact behavior and dietary choices. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.